This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 7th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to be looking at a few developments in the areas of tax. Specifically this week, we're going to look at the IRS-issued guidance, finally, that defines their position on staking rewards in cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, that's a situation that actually had a case going through the courts trying to force the IRS to give a position on the issue. And we'll talk a little bit about that case here, but now we do have a formal ruling where the service says that those are taxable when the taxpayer obtains dominion and control. We also have interim guidance issued on Friday for home energy audit credit, home energy audit tax credit, say it right, that was added by the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 under Internal Revenue Code Section 25C. We'll talk about how what such, a, what such an audit is, is defined. We'll also talk about the qualifications somebody must have to conduct such an audit and other issues in interim guidance that is out there in anticipation of the service issuing regulations that will be generally in line with the interim guidance. And finally, we have proposed regulations that were issued this week to add monetized installment sales to the list of listed transactions. We'll talk about what those sales are, a little discussion about why it matters if something gets added to the listed transaction list, and what steps you might need to take or might want to take, at least advise your client to take, if they've entered into one of these transactions. Suffice it to say, the IRS doesn't like them. So let's start with the IRS ruling on cryptocurrency staking rewards. This was Revenue Ruling 2023-14. It came out on July the 31st. Now, in Notice 2014-21, the IRS had ruled, you know, basically nine years ago, that cryptocurrency received from mining was taxable when received by the miner. Now, for those who aren't aware, at that time, nine years ago, the way that you generally obtain new, you basically ran the blockchain, which is the ledger that keeps track of all of the transactions in most cryptocurrency structures, that's kind of the defining feature of them, that that was maintained through a system where various parties participate in what's called a mining activity. And at mining activity, those who solved a particularly complex math problem that over time got more complex would be allowed to add transactions to the blockchain. And there had to be a consensus in regard to whether or not that was correct. And the parties would participate in that. But that party that had solved the math problem and earned the right to update the blockchain, they would receive a certain amount of cryptocurrency. At the time, probably Bitcoin, because that at the time was the major thing in play. And that's how you would pick that up. Now, that mining operation involved having a lot of very, very high-powered computer equipment. In fact, generally, because of their ability to do certain tasks very, very quickly, it would be a bank of graphics cards. That's why graphics cards prices went through the roof for a while. That would, oh, by the way, also consume a ton of electricity. And so essentially, you only wanted to be a miner someplace where energy prices were cheap and it didn't get too hot because cooling wherever the, wherever the computers were could become very expensive very quickly and just running them became expensive. So that was it. So in essence, that's called proof of work for updating the related blockchain, you know, and being rewarded with coin for being the first to essentially solve the detailed math problem. Now, as I said, due to the, there are a couple of problems coming up. As I said, the math problem keeps getting progressively harder because there was concern with generating too many coins too quickly and, you know, basically having the amount of Bitcoin out there or whatever coin it was inflate too quickly and that would drop the value of each. So for various reasons and having more parties out there working on it, uh, the problems get increasingly difficult over time to solve. That meant you need more and more powerful computer equipment. Back in the early days of Bitcoin, you could have a 
what was even for the day would be considered a super low, low powerful computer compared to what you could have today. And it could be just a plain vanilla off the shelf computer and it could run and it would probably generate some Bitcoin. By the way, if you did that back in the very early days, you probably had Bitcoin that's very, very valuable. And hopefully you didn't just figure this is never going to be anything and, you know, not know where you put that coin or how you, you know where you stored it or what drive it's on or how to unlock it and all those things, because that, that could be bad, uh, you know, those sorts of situations. But yeah, at the time, very simple. Uh, today, in such case of proof of work, yeah, it is incredibly difficult to generate those, uh, to, to basically win the task of computing the solution, unless you have a highly dedicated, big, powerful, and energy-dranking machine that, that will do it. As I would say, I'm sitting here in Phoenix. It simply isn't practical in Phoenix because there is way too much heat and there is just cooling that down and keeping these systems from overheating will bankrupt you. So you needed someplace nice and cold uh, was basically what the problem was. And there were a lot of concerns for that, for energy use, scaling. So we moved to a concept called staking or proof of stake. And a proof of stake system, which certain currencies use, uh, you pledge coins you already have to be able to get a chance to be a validator and add transactions to the blockchain. And again, if there is majority approval of the additions you've made to the blockchain, when you've done the work and it's easier to check than it is to add, uh, you know, if, if that proof gets out there, then you're rewarded with coin. And if you tried to sneak something in or double up things or do other things you shouldn't have done when you had control, then you are basically docked. That, that's kind of the incentive program to keep somebody from just, you know, fooling with the blockchain, uh, going out of control. And what tends to happen is that we see these uh, coins get pooled. And so things like exchanges and issues like that will go ahead and allow you to put coins on deposit with them for staking. And you'll participate in their pool. And that's where you get a return based on this. So the question is going to be, you know, what exactly is the tax content of the staking? Now, most everybody assumed that the IRS was going to come to the same conclusion on staking as they had for mining. That the two are the same thing, practical purposes. Therefore, if mining is considered by the IRS to generate income at the time you get control of the coin, then staking should come to the same conclusion. However, we never got a ruling from the IRS on this issue, despite the fact it's been known to be an issue now for a number of years. And in fact, we had a case that is still in progress in the Sixth Circuit, Jarrett versus United States, where a taxpayer filed their tax return, claimed the staking amount as income, then went back and filed a claim for refund, attempting to get a refund of the tax on the staked amount. Now, that was all a setup, to be honest, and I shouldn't say setup in a bad frame, but obviously what they were doing was they wanted the IRS to disallow the claim for refund, which the IRS did, that allowed them to sue the IRS for the refund, and their theory was was going to force the IRS to defend their position in court, and more importantly, is going to force the courts to rule on whether or not the staking is taxable income. And obviously the Jarrett's would prefer the answer it wasn't, but bottom line was right now the problem became after the case went to court and the government figured out what was going on here, that these guys, you know, who had been disallowed a very small refund, why in the world are they paying to go to district court and incur thousands of dollars in legal expenses? And the point was because essentially this was being backed as a test case. And the idea was that we would take this case to court, they'd get a ruling, and it really wasn't about the little amounts that these taxpayers had on, you know, they were asking back from the IRS. Well, having figured that out, the IRS just refunded them the money. Now, they, they settled the case by essentially saying, yeah, you know, we, we've had discussions, we've considered the case, we're gonna give you the money back. 
We're not going to say we're conceding anything. We're just going to issue the refund. Now, that does not establish any precedent for anybody else. That's important to understand. That's why the Jarrett's are continuing the case or working in the case. That's no good as precedent. The IRS has the same right as taxpayers, essentially, to merely settle a case because it's not worth their time to litigate. It's not worth their bother, or they simply don't want a decision on the books. And yes, even in civil litigation, there are times when parties will agree to settle because somebody doesn't want a judgment against them saying they did X, so they just agree, never admitting fault, to pay whatever damages may be in play. And that's the regular technique in court. Obviously, the Jarrett's didn't like that decision. They wanted to turn down the refund, but the trial court said, guys, you know, the whole point of the courts is to settle disputes and make people whole. You have been made whole. There is, you know, there, there is no, I don't see you have any standing to litigate any issue or any standing to force the IRS to rule on this more than anybody else because you no longer have unique damages. Now, the Sixth Circuit has heard the appeal of this, where they're trying to get it to go back to court and force the issue. But the panel's questions reportedly all seem to come much the same conclusion. They, they weren't sure there was standing or that there was any way you could force an agency to make a decision, pointing out that you know, th this could require them to make decisions before they had all the data and have to come forward with something early. And so basically it's there. Now, whether this gets mooted at this point, which I think there's a reasonable chance it will, because it may be smarter for those backing the Jarrett's to go back in, now get a ruling, now basically get a denial under this revenue ruling, and then take that to court. We do expect it to be challenged. Let's talk about the facts of the rule, the facts that were put up for the ruling, because they always have these set of facts that's going to answer the question. So in the example facts, we're going to have transactions are in M, a cryptocurrency, and they're subject to a proof of stake consensus mechanism. So again, staking is what's in play here. On date one, and we always have these dates. On date one, taxpayer A, cash method taxpayer, which by the way, has been pointed out as an interesting point that this has that little clause there that you wonder, well, why was that necessary in the facts? And the answer is, well, this only really answers the question for cash basis, which raises questions. So, what would be different on accrual? You know, it sounds like it could be different. But that tax cash basis taxpayer owns 300 units of the coin. They stake 200 of the units and validates a new block of transactions on the blockchain, receiving two units of the coin as a validation reward. So they, end, they start out with 300 units of it, 300 of the coins. They put two, pledge 200 of them into the stake pool. And now they have 302 coins. Now, pursuant to the protocol, because everything, all of these are governed by protocols that are the rules under which these chains operate. So under the protocol, there's a brief period ending on date two, so the day after we validated, uh, where they lack the ability to sell, exchange, or otherwise dispose of any interest in the two units in any manner. That generally would allow time to uncover if they had done something untoward, shall we say. And therefore, we could, therefore, the protocol would yank those two units back, take them off the blockchain, and essentially then start penalization, potentially, of this party. So we have that, that two days, for you know, that day for them to check. The following day, on day three, they have the ability to sell, exchange, or otherwise dispose of those two units. So now it's out there, it's free and clear, it's theirs. They can do whatever they want with those two coins they just got which includes converting them to the fiat currency cash, you know, you, you know, US dollars, or, you know, whatever else they want to do with them. So they have unfettered use of them on that date. Generally, the ruling says that you included an income in the year in which the taxpayer obtains dominion and control over the validation reward. Now, in this example, that would have clearly been the year in which date three fell, whatever year that was. So the year date three fell is it, and the fair market value on that date when they first obtained dominion and control 
would set the value of what they received. Because again, we've got to revalue this since it's considered property under the prior rulings. We value the property at the value on the date we receive it, since we're deemed to receive it at the time we get dominion and control. We basically have gone through the process where it could have been taken back, and now we're allowed to sell, exchange, or whatever we want with it. Then we have the income at that point with the value at that instant when, that, when we finally get that dominion and control. Right? So as I said, the value of the coin on day three at the time, and the ruling actually does say the time, when dominion and control were obtained. So that is their structure. This will be ordinary income, is the idea. And conceptually, very much like staking, you know, it's just income. Except in this case, they didn't tell us if this would be normally self-employment income. My guess is it probably won't be because this doesn't have the same sort of activities underlying it as do mining, where you have to go out, buy tons of equipment, get all this in. This is simply giving somebody or putting up 200, putting up some of your property, you know, putting it at risk, shall we say, in case, you know, the staking doesn't work right, and then getting paid at that point. And generally, because most individuals aren't really doing the staking themselves, they're putting it into a pool via an exchange that then will do the staking. Uh, essentially, they just sit there and the exchange will pay them. And the exchange has a pretty predictable amount they're going to earn because they know how much they have, how often they should. You know, in essence, you have a big enough pool, you're going to start earning the statistical or the average out of the, out of the amount that would normally be turned for the, for the coin as a whole. Now, there are some limitations on the ruling that have been noted. Some of them, and they're put in various places in the ruling. I noted already that under the facts, it only applies to cash basis taxpayers. They never told us what would happen if that taxpayer was not cash basis. The fact they added that clause in there tells you that that has some meaning, but we just don't know when. Probably it would affect the timing of recognition. Okay? They did not have any discussion, and a footnote tells you this, of gas or transaction fees. This doesn't deal with those you know, gas fees, transaction fees that are charged. Uh, whether they're charged to you or whether they're deducted from the amount you receive back. There are various other issues. They're not dealing with that at this point, which again is kind of an open question. My guess is most gas fees are going to be considered to, if you're acquiring something, you know, such fees would be added to basis. And if you are, you know, so would add to the basis of your asset acquired, uh, or if you're selling it, it would be a cost of sale. But again, they didn't tell us that. It's still open. They also said they did not address any other IRC areas, but they specifically called out Section 83, which is the receipt of property for services. And so somehow, if that gets involved with this staking transaction, then apparently there's something different to go there. Not sure. Now, we know this has already been taken to court with a well-funded court case in Jared. And they're struggling right now to get a ruling on the issue. But there's little reason to believe that the same group is not going to come back now and attempt to get a case under this revenue ruling, in which case now the IRS is going to be, you know, a little more iffy or a little more under pressure to actually litigate and defend it. And frankly, they may actually be ready to litigate or defend the issue. That may be part of what we now know because this came out. In any event, if you have clients who have staking, uh, do realize now the IRS has a formal position on this. Uh, if you're going to try to take the position that it's not taxable, some people try to argue that it is the like the production of inventory, that it's brand new uh, items. I personally see flaws in that. The major flaw being that it is the protocol that creates the coin, right? There just is a standard that, it, and the protocol is basically what's effectively been the rules of engagement that those who basically own this coin or transact in this coin have agreed to by becoming part of it, that the group of, as a whole has agreed that a coin will be created if these conditions are met, and then it will be awarded to a person. That's not quite the same as, you know, one person used the example of baking a cake is what Jarrett's were using. 
And there, no, no, if, if you're a baker and you ba create a cake, you actually create a cake. You didn't have a cake given to you by a group because you, you know, put up some funds. And remember, in this case, you have somebody deliver the cake to you. You don't make the cake. You didn't make the coin. The coin rather is one that is allowed to be added to the blockchain because you fulfilled the requirements of the group and the group has said, okay, we will go ahead and recognize two more coins as existing and award them to you. So I'm not sure it stands up. I understand the theory though, and obviously I'm not the judge. I'm not gonna rule on this in court, but I would say if you're gonna take that position, I would certainly disclose it on the return because now it's pretty clear you're contrary to the IRS's stated ruling. Again, realize that if you come push comes to shove, you know, they're going to probably try to argue that that automatically means that you don't have substantial authority. And remember, you have to have substantial authority for a non-disclosed position, or if your adjustment's large, uh, and large would be more than $5,000 or 10% of the tax actually do, whichever is more, uh, or 5% if you have 199 cap A on your return, which is a weird other item there. Um, that'll be an automatic 20% penalty, unless you have disclosed, and disclosure works, you have a reasonable basis. Uh, I always figure that 99 times out of 100, uh, discretion is the better part, part of valor. And despite the fact that, as I've said for years, so many people think that an A275 on a return is an automatic audit red flag. No. If it was, I should have seen way more audits in my career than I have. And I haven't seen, you know, I have done A275s multiple times. I have never seen an audit on a return with A275 I filed, right, prepared. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't audit them, but it does mean that obviously I've cleared quite a few 82, my clients have had quite a few 8275s clear. What I do know though, is having been told years ago by somebody who does a lot of work in areas where there are, you know, really high tax controversy matters at hand, was that he had never seen the IRS even assert the penalty. If an A275 was on the return for the issue. So it takes it off the table. So my theory is, it's always best. My other issue is, as a lot of people I've lectured to, I've talked to a lot of firms over the years and other partners of the firms and stuff who filed these A275s. And pretty much everybody says, no, we've never seen an audit triggered by it. And if the return in question has come under audit, what tends to happen is that it's not in the IDR, nothing related to this in the IDR. And when the, you know, and if the field agent comes out and looks at it, they kind of look at it, wonder what's this? And, you know, you explain what it is and they figure, well, maybe I should say something about this in the report. Okay, that doesn't sound good. But then they just turn around and say, because you'll attach your explanation, your logic behind it, and they'll just add that in and say, can I just use this as my explanation? And we say, sure, plagiarize away. We don't care. You know, that, that's the background. My take is the classifiers who review returns are sharp enough to realize that you, a return more likely to generate money on exam is one where the taxpayer is not ready for the questions you're going to be asking. The A275 is a very clear piece of evidence that the taxpayer is ready for the question. And you're not surprising anybody if you raise this issue. So if an A275 was touting an absolutely extreme position that had no way whatsoever of having support, yeah, you'd go after it. But if that position is one of those that's kind of, and eh, this could get iffy, you know, I don't know if we're going to win or not. They're more likely to pick up that issue on a return without an A275. Figuring that those guys haven't researched that these guys have, let's go for the easier money. Next up, we have IRS Notice 2023-59 issued on Friday, August the 4th. And this deals with the Energy Efficient Home Improvement Credit. That credit gives you 30% of qualified expenditures subject to various limits. And we've had this credit under a slightly different name for quite a while. Remember, it's the old one that had the lifetime limits. We no longer have lifetime limits. It's now capped at $1,200 for most things for the year. But then every subcategory has its own limit that's less than 1,200. 
and there are two categories that actually can add another 2,000 on top. So, bit messy, credit. But one of the new categories that got added, effective for 2023, was the home energy audit credit. And that is one such expense that we have to deal with. The maximum credit, so this is not a big dollar credit you look at, would be $150. And again, still it has to be 30%. So you've got, you know, in essence, you're going to have to spend $500 to get a $150 credit. So they're going to pay for a part of it. So if you get a home energy audit, it costs you 500 bucks, let's say, then they're going to subsidize 30% of it. If it costs more than 500 bucks, and one example the IRS uses is a thousand bucks, the actual uh, notice, well, then you're still only going to get a $150 credit, right? That's the issue. Now, this home energy audit has to meet certain qualifications and writing all of those qualifications was somewhat left up to the IRS to write via regulations. And obviously that those regulations aren't going to come out instantly. So what we have at this point is this interim guidance. Also, in addition to the IRS defining it, they're also, the IRS is, is basically assigned to, re, to write up rules for certain substantiation that the homeowner must provide when a home energy audit credit is claimed. Now this credit is only available on your principal residence. So if you have a vacation home somewhere, you've got, got a vacation home somewhere else in the country or somewhere else just in, in Arizona or in Phoenix, you probably have it up in the high country in Arizona, which is way cooler and way nicer right now this time of year. Uh, you're not going to be able to get it on that vacation home, but you would be able to get it on your principal residence. So it is based on that. Now, the notice, as I said, is meant to provide interim guidance until we get some regulations issued and the regs are expected to follow this interim guidance. They define what a home energy audit is. It has to be a basically a program to identify the most significant and cost-effective energy efficiency improvements with respect to such dwelling units to an estimate of the energy and cost savings with respect to each such improvement. Now, energy efficiency improvements are those that qualify for this credit. So it could be things like doors, windows, you know, various other things qualify, certain heat pumps, you know, things that qualify for this credit that they're going to take a look and say, okay, I'm looking at your home. I'm looking at what exists currently. What, what would give you the most bang for the buck? You know, if you're going to improve this house, try to improve and reduce your energy expenditures, your energy costs, what makes the most sense to do? And I have a feeling after people look at their utility bills for July and Phoenix this year, they may be talking about doing this. Uh, yeah, we're, we're going to say usage is up. I've looked at my uh, usage via Salt River Project, and it's significantly higher this July than last July. Can't imagine why. A record number of days above 110 for high consecutively probably had something to do with that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm thinking it might. Don't know. Maybe I'm wrong entirely, but I, I do think it might have had something to do with it. That audit has to be conducted by a qualified home energy auditor or another supervision of a qualified home energy auditor. Now, this is a specialized category. We'll talk about this. I will warn you right now, through the end of this year, we're going to suspend this requirement a bit, right? In essence, we'll talk about why there is a suspension through the end of the year, because qualified home energy auditors are going to have to meet certain requirements and may not be able to do it instantly. It must, there must be a written report. That's going to be required this year. It just doesn't have to be prepared and signed by a qualified home energy auditor. We're going to discover. And that audit must be consistent with the most recent Department of Energy-led and industry-validated job task analysis. There is a footnote in the uh, notice that tells you where to find that stuff. So you can figure that out or the person conducting the audit to figure it out. So we are going to need to meet all the requirements, except as we'll discover the qualified home energy auditor is going to be, they're going to give them till the first of next year to meet that requirement, that they have that in there. To meet that requirement, you're going to be certified by a qualified certification program at the time of the audit. That's a big problem right now because now we're finally been told what these are. The details for them are in the notice. If you're actually trying to qualify somebody for it, we'll tell you what you have to do. We have to set up this program. So entities have to set this program up. 
then the person must complete the program and you know obtain the certification. So I would assume it would probably be something very similar to you know like you get certified on certain IT stuff, you pass those certifications. Uh, certain groups will set themselves up to provide validation here and you'll go through and you'll obtain their certificate and that certificate will be considered adequate to make you a qualified home energy auditor. As I said, the transition rules delayed this requirement to the beginning of 2024. What it actually says is um, it won't apply for audits completed after the end of last year because they're completed before the end of last year. They don't count. And completed before January 1st of 2024. It's not when you start the audits when you complete it. So if somebody starts the audit on December 30th of 2023 and doesn't complete the audit and issue the report until January 3rd, they will have to be a qualified home energy auditor. If they stayed around, worked overtime, finished that report at 1159 of 2023 and delivered it out at that time, email timestamped, everything's perfect, then they wouldn't need to be the certified, they wouldn't need to have had the certification at that point. Final thing for this week, we're going to talk about proposed regulations under Section 6011, proposed regs 1.6011-13, found in the proposed reg publication of REG-109348-22, uh, published in the Federal Register on August the 4th of 2023. Now, this deals with the reportable, reportable and listed transaction rules. Reportable and reportable transaction, including listed transaction reporting, regulations are found under Regulation 1.611-4. The idea of this was the IRS, there were certain transactions that are what's called under the law reportable. Now, reportable transactions meet certain criteria, and the IRS does not have to specifically identify them. However, there is a second category of the law created called listed transactions. Those are potentially abusive transactions the IRS has specifically identified. And if the IRS, if the transactions in the list of transactions list, and you are considered to have participated in the list of transaction, then you are required to make a disclosure on the return. So either you're in a reportable transaction, you meet the, gen the general purpose test found in the statute, or you participate in a transaction that is on the IRS listed transaction category. Uh, now, there has been some court fights currently over how the IRS can add transactions to that category. And while the IRS is still saying they disagree with the holding, they are going through the formality of adding these items to the listed transaction list now via proposed regulations that are added to the regulations under 6011. So that's where we're seeing them come up these days. Now, the other neat thing is those regulations under 6011-4 tell us for a listed transaction, it's not just the specific transaction that is required to be reported. If a transaction is substantially similar, then it's still considered listed, even if it doesn't literally follow all of the requirements found in the listed transaction. The substantially similar rule means, uh, and why that's there is, what tax shelter promoters have done for decades. And they'll always tell you this. You know, th there's something here. It sounds like something the IRS has specifically ruled doesn't work. You know, and maybe it does in the court challenge. Maybe there's even court challenges and they failed. They've lost every time. Just lose, lose, lose every time this transaction does not work. But a promoter is coming to your client with something that looks, it's, it's that transaction, right? Oh no, we changed some minor details somewhere. So it's not the same transaction. Uh, you know, if, if that's, as, as some say, that, that's your line of putting lipstick on the pig. Um, yeah, it's still a pig. Um, you know, and this is still a bad transaction, even though we put some lipstick on it. Uh, so nevertheless, uh, you know, we still have to put it down as a listed transaction. So if they tell you, oh, theirs is different, well, even if it's different, if it's still very much like the transaction list, the transaction list, you must report it. Therefore, bottom line, if in doubt, report is going to be the issue. 
Now, you're considered to participate in the transaction in any year. The return reflects the tax consequences of the transaction. That includes amended returns you may file, right? The returns, years that are affected by carryovers. So there can be a lot of years in play, and this can be important because there is a per year penalty that can apply if you don't make the disclosure, right? Disclosure goes on Form 8886, Reportable Transaction Disclosure Statement, must be filed for each year that a return reflects the tax consequences of a listed transaction. And by the way, there is a short, is it 90-day time period uh, that you will have to file that 8886 for any prior returns if a return, once a transaction gets formally added to the list of transaction list. If your client went out and participated in one of these, as you will discover what they are, monetized installment sale transactions in 2021, and the statute's not yet closed on that year, they must file the 8886 within 90 days or they're in violation of disclosure rules. And as we'll discover, there's also gonna be an extended statute on any tax consequences from that transaction for that year until you start, the statute will not continue to run until such time as you file the form. So yeah, you wanna watch this transaction list if your clients are participating in aggressive tax planning strategies, uh, especially ones that are marketed, you really wanna keep an eye on the list of transactions coming up. Now, if you fail to disclose, bad things happen. Probably not surprised about that. First, you can be penalized for failure to disclose an amount equal to 75% of the net tax benefit you receive for the year. And this applies regardless of whether or not ultimately it is determined that the benefit was proper. So if this particular tax, this particular transaction you did saved you $100,000 this year, or reduce your taxes by $100,000, then you have a then you would the preliminary penalty would be $75,000. If it reduced your tax by 1,000, then it would be 750. Except we're going to find out both of those are subject to another caveat. It would not actually be 750 because there is a minimum penalty of $5,000 for an individual who fails to report a listed transaction, $10,000 for any other entity. So that $1,000 tax savings that generated a $750, $750 initial penalty would actually be a $5,000 penalty. Similarly, there is a maximum penalty of $100,000 for an individual, $200,000 for others. So if I had a million dollars tax savings, it would not be a $750,000 penalty by an individual would be 100,000. The corporation would be 200,000. So that'd be the penalty. As I say, this penalty applies regardless of whether or not, regardless of whether or not, the transaction is finally found to work by the court and its benefits were all legit. You were, you, listed transactions must be disclosed, period. There is no option to not disclose them and argue that the transaction is really valid. The point of this is to bring these transactions to the IRS's attention that, you know, what, what returns have these transactions, the services identified, not to be judged during execution or on the fact they're bad. So you just have to tell the service you have one. And yes, you're volunteering essentially to be examined when you do that, but them, them's the risk you take when you start buying these sorts of transactions, bottom line. Other consequences is there's an automatic, there's an accuracy related penalty for any understatements to reportable transactions. If you did properly disclose, it'll be the standard 20% penalty, okay, right, for disclosing the transactions. It will be 30% if you failed to properly disclose the transaction. So your penalty will go up by 50% automatically. In addition to, that's if it turns out it doesn't work. And that's in addition to your disclosure penalty that you're going to get because you didn't disclose it. And the statute on this transaction or any tax consequences arising from this transaction will not begin to run for any return until the 8886 is filed for that return. These are all bad consequences of having a listed transaction and not properly disclosing that transaction on the return. So again, if your client has done this transaction, you want to make sure you are talking about 
What are we going to do if this thing gets listed? And the other thing is probably talk about if a client's done it and the IRS is putting on this list, that does mean they're likely to litigate it. You need to seriously ask the client about, are you ready to go to court to defend this thing? Because bottom line, this also tells you that the service plans to take these to court. You know, they're, they're not going to allow anybody to concede them normally. So be aware of that. Now, the transaction that is proposed to be added, let's talk about the transaction question. What is a monetized installment sale transaction that the IRS is saying, hey, this is one you got to give us an 8886 on, or at least will be one you got to do that on when we finally get around to adding adding this to the list of transaction list. Well, first thing we have is somebody who has an appreciated asset that they want to sell. I mean, nicely appreciated. This is not the sort of transaction you're going to do to defer paying tax on a gain, you know, of $2,000 on a piece of land you own somewhere, or even probably $200,000 or $300,000. The costs of getting into this program are going to probably mean we're looking at a lot of seven-figure transactions and the like, but could be anything, but still, you know, we're going to look at some bigger gains. It will probably just, the, the fees are going to make it not something you'd even, wouldn't even consider it could work. I mean, even if it worked, you would still be uh, on the wrong side of the net cash after all this is done routine at the end of the day. So we have this asset. It's going to trigger a $5 million gain. We already have a buyer. We found our buyer. We got somebody who's willing to buy this from us. We know how much they're going to buy, pay. Now the promoter comes in and says, I'm going to bring in an intermediary, right? We're going to go ahead and I'm going to, you're going to actually sell the asset to this other party. Okay. They will buy the asset from you. They will issue an installment note. That is a balloon installment interest only for the term. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, there'll be a single balloon payment due at the end to pay off the note. So that buyer then turns immediately around and sells the property to the ultimate buyer for cash. Okay, so far you see where this is going, but it seems to be a little bit of a problem because, okay, let's say if it did work, I don't pay tax right now, but I have no cash in my hand. I wanted cash, right? I'm, I'm trying to get a benefit from this. I could have just had my own installment sale, you know, over to the buyer and do this. And, you know, well, what's the magic so far? Ah, we'll go through the magic because, yes, we understand, Mr. Seller, you want the cash in your hand. I'm going to get you that cash. I'm going to do it in such a way that you will pay no tax. I'm a magician. Uh, well, we'll see how good a magician they are. According to the IRS, not a very good one. But let's go on to the next thing. Now, the promoter refers the seller to a third party who enters into an agreement to loan the seller the money or somewhat less than the sales price of the property. Okay, great. So I now have an unsecured loan that I'm going to pay interest on awaiting you. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to take the risk that you don't repay me, right? And you're going to hold it all that time. And I'm going to be paying interest. I've got an unsecured loan. I'm probably going to pay higher interest. That still doesn't seem like a great deal. Well, so we want to make the third party cooperative and get a better deal on the loan. So the intermediary transfers the cash after they take their fees out to this third party lender, who's going to be, quote, the lender, right? The third party then loans money to the seller under a note that essentially is kind of following the basic installment note agreement we had to start with there, right? So it follows that note and they take their fees out. And obviously this fees netting eventually reduces itself. But in any event, we now have this note, which, oh, by the way, is going to be right in line with the installment note. All of them are going to be non-recourse type notes. And what's going to happen is the loans are arranged to so all the interest offsets. So every year the seller has interest income on the installment note and offsetting interest expense on the loan. So investment interest, okay, those two offset every year. And finally, when the balloon payments come due on both loans at the same time, 
they also magically offset. So voila, we have a deemed payment that year, even though we don't get any cash that final year. We got the cash back 10, 15 years earlier, but we have no cash. We got, you know, we know we have no cash. We'll then pay tax, but it'll be 15, 20 years down the line. The magic is you don't pay any tax currently. You get virtually all of your cash currently minor our reason, minus our reasonable fee. And presumably the reasonable fee is such that it is more than paid for by the present value tax savings, right? We present value our benefit. We're not going to pay tax until 15 years from now. And, you know, in essence, we're going to have a present value of money, you know, a present value of a dollar goes forward that far. And so the fees we're going to argue are less than that. Be honest, because people don't understand that. All they'll know is they don't pay tax, they pay it later. So I have a feeling that in many of these cases, that some of these have been done, if you actually ran the numbers from a present value standpoint, given the fees charged, they're probably still worse off. That wouldn't surprise me because the average person simply doesn't have a clue what present value means. And so couldn't run a present value test and would likely not, not be aware. And I guarantee if the promoter can figure out how to raise the fee, uh, and they're, they've got this party so fascinated by, hey, you're not paying tax this year. And I've said this a couple of times too online recently, that people, too many people in real life just totally detach their mind, you know, totally ignore everything else they hear once somebody says your tax will be reduced. And if you are a grifter, scammer, whatever you're going to call it, you realize that you say those magic words and you can just like, pick their pocket with no limit. They will not care what they pay you as long as you keep saying the magic words, but look at the tax you're saving. And you can just fill your pockets with every dollar. They will never notice that they're worse off after it's done. And yes, there are people that are that way. I've had clients over the years that have definitely been that way. And you have to kind of try to shock them into understanding why you don't pay unlimited fees to save even if it's 100,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 in tax, it doesn't make sense to pay somebody $2 million to save 300 grand. At the end of the day, pay me $200,000, you know, and assuming it's a business expense, it'll save you the 300 grand. Uh, but you just give me the money. I'll, I'll take the hit for the taxes. The promoter is gladly taking the hit for the taxes because the promoter is not an idiot. <laughs> that's, that's the only simple way to phrase it. Why do you think they're taking the hit? Just because they're such a nice guy and they sacrifice themselves for you? No. They're taking the hit because they're smart enough to realize paying the tax is going to get them more net in pocket than going through all these machinations. Okay? Now, why does the IRS say this transaction doesn't work? You probably thought of a few reasons as we went through it. The IRS says first that the intermediary is not a bona fide purchaser. They are ju just a, they're, they're just a paper transaction set up between the buyer and the seller who've already negotiated the deal, right? The buyer and the seller's deal is done. This intermediary has no interest whatsoever in owning this property. This intermediary has no interest whatsoever in taking any risk with this property. Now, some people might say, wait, wait, but what about 1031 exchanges? I would point out there that that is covered by statute. So the qualified intermediary there has statutory recognition, right? So honestly, under 1031, because 1031 itself is kind of an odd, shall we say, you know, artificial addition to the code, that's different. This does not have the same sort of statutory cover, or at least probably won't, that they are going to rule the installment sales because there, there's no rule here of why we need to have somebody to hold the funds as an intermediary to keep the seller from touching the funds. The only reason the seller doesn't want to touch the funds directly, but wants them to go through this odd roundabout process is to avoid paying the tax, uh, at least currently. And that's very different than the statutory provision that Congress specifically put in. So yes, the promoter is going to keep saying it's like a 1031 exchange. No, it's not. It's not like a 1031 exchange. This intermediary has absolutely no purpose in life. Right there, and unlike a qualified intermediary, they're not going to hold anything for any period of time whatsoever. A QI 
normally ends up holding the cash for a while. And that, that puts some real risks in the system. This guy is going to have that, he's going to have the cash and the property move so quick, you won't know what happened. Okay. And this is the second. Intermediary is never the owner of the property. They have absolutely no benefits or burdens of ownership. All they do is saying the benefits and burdens in this transaction always reside with either the seller until we're able to close or the buyer once it's been closed. The intermediary never actually has any risks involved with this property. They never own, they never truly own the property. There's no risks involved. The risks are identical. The benefits and burdens are identical to what would have happened if the sale had gone directly from the seller to the buyer for cash. Nothing else changes. Everything from this point forward is all protected by all these side agreements and offsetting loans and everything else just pretty much means there are no risks or, you know, the, the risks and rewards of the transaction disappeared. The risks and rewards of the property were with the seller and with the ultimate buyer and never with anybody else. So that's the second claim they've got. They're also saying that given the structure of this transaction, all the protections, the buyer should be treated as getting the cash, you know, on the date the cash is received by the buyer. Not on the date actual cash received by the buyer, not on the date there is finally a deemed netting of everything. And we journal entry our way out of all these loans and there's no cash changing hands. That's not the date. The actual date of cash should be the date the buyer is treated as receiving the cash. And finally, they go to the statutes. Congress ad number years ago, 77010, that requires that transactions that have no economic substance are going to be recast or they're going to be ignored. They're going to totally ignore the whole say, we're going to ignore that whole intermediary and the loan and all that stuff. We're just going to look at this buyer sells property, seller pays cash, buyer gets X cash, less some fees. And that all occurs on the date. There's no economic substance to anything else in the middle covered by the statute 77010 under, this, under that economic substance requirement. We don't have to recognize parts of the transaction that lack economic substance. By we, I mean the IRS does not need to recognize that. That opens this whole thing up to a problem. Now, where do you stand on this? If you have a client right now that has entered into such a transaction previously, you should contact them and let them know that the IRS has put this on their about to be added to the listed transaction list and have a discussion with them and likely their counsel uh, regarding what that means, uh, whether they want to basically say, okay, it's getting more heat than I want to see. I'm going to give up and just, you know, give up, do an amended return, pay back the tax benefit, but do all of this for the service contacts me. And, you know, we'll just be safe and out of this, right? We'll have various ways of getting out. Or do we want to go forward? You know, does counsel believe it is defensible? And if they do, then, you know, how we're going to, you know, the disclosure we're going to plan to give, how we're going to fill out the 8886 to describe everything at the time, you know, what exactly we're going to do and get and start getting that ready so when we discover the reg has gone final and we verify that nothing really changed in it, we, we execute so we don't run into problems of having late filed the notice that we participate in a list of transactions and identify every year impacted. Remember, if there are carryovers, carrybacks, anything of that sort, you've got to identify every year impacted, which probably is going to be the year of sale. And you might think, well, that's the only year. No. Because of the fake transaction considering on for 15 years, I've got to keep filing this 8886 on paper every year until that thing closes out. Then I'm going to follow the transaction. And if I miss a year, even though that year might have no tax consequence, because again, with the, with the income and the investment interest, interest income investment interest offsetting, there might be no tax effect. It's still though the minimum penalty of $5,000 for not disclosing. So that's the problem we've got for each of those years. And even in a year where it would finally, quote, pay out, well, that, that may be a tax cost that year. But again, the minimum penalty would still trigger at 5000 So we have issues. 
you know, kind of discuss with the client, sees what's there. If a client you under, if you hear a client is considering such a transaction, somebody came and said, oh yeah, yeah, my, my buddy says there's this perfect way. I will not have to pay tax on selling my business for 15 years. I'm going to sell the stock in the company. This company, this big company wants to buy it. They want to buy my stock, uh, but they only want to pay cash for the stock. And they'll say, oh, but th this guy says, hey, you know, come to us and we'll just set ourselves up and we'll do this intermediary routine and you'll be able to delay paying that tax for 15 years. It'll be great. Um, you might want to talk to them about the fact that it's on this list, tell them what you'd have to do once this became final. Uh, and, you know, they probably should seek independent legal counsel, not affiliated with the promoter to see whether or not it appears that this really could work. I mean, you, you should evaluate as well. Now I do, I remember years ago, an attorney now who's just about to retire, uh, told me about a case he was asked to look at for something like this. Client came wanting to review one of these transactions. And he had this big, long legal opinion from the promoter. That the promoter claims said it's all fine and good. Uh, obviously they don't expect anybody to read it. So anyway, so he, the client brings it into the attorney and says, well, you know, and I understand that you, you, you think, you know, I've been told I should get third party, you know, approval of this. And, you know, so I, I would like you to read this over, look at the transaction, read over what they've done, and then give, give me your opinion about whether or not this is good, whether or not it stands up and what are the odds of it winning. And the attorney said very simply to them, he said, I could do that. But I want you to know something before I get started. He said, I, I have read a number of these you know, in this area. I've read a ton of these over the years. I have yet to find one that I thought worked. And of those I reviewed that have had time to get court cases in front of them, it turns out that I probably wasn't wrong in any of them. Now, I am going to charge you for every hour and it's going to take a lot to go through this because I got to go through that whole 500 page opinion and find out all the potential flaws, weaknesses, or places where they really didn't tell you anything in opinion, which is a lot of those opinions do. They, they, they read great, you know, they read for a while, but ultimately when you figure out all of their caveats, they really didn't say anything. They just have 500 pages that said nothing. What if they'll turn ChatGPT into writing those opinions? It's, it's possible. I mean, and the hallucinations may not matter much considering how, worth, how worthless it was anyway, but still probably shouldn't use the ones that are hallucinating. So, but you know, if we get that hallucination problem underway, so it just cites real cases, then they could use it because it's just got to write, write a worthless opinion that looks impressing because it's 500 pages. That's all they have to do. So, you know, be careful there. Keep your eye on this. It is important. You keep your eye on what are listed transactions. Now we did have a bunch delisted taken off because of that ruling last year that effectively said that the IRS has to go through the regulatory process, the regulation process of putting them out for comment and then holding the hearing, right? And then issuing and taking into consideration the feedback they get, then issuing regulations to add them. So they're putting those back in. Uh, but it is important to understand what are listed transactions. And if somebody comes with you with something like this simply sounds too good to be true, well, it probably is. But secondly, there's a good chance it eventually ends up as a listed transaction. Okay, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of uh, August the 7th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. If you have any questions, my email address is edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I also monitor uh, discussions on the Connect groups for the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society, Minnesota Society, Illinois Society, and Washington Society and also keep my eye on discussion group for Idaho. And oh, by the way, I also do post every so often on, I guess we'll call it the app formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. Uh, my handle there is Ed Zollers. I also am on threads at Ed Zollers is there too, Ed Zollers. So same on both, makes it easier to find me both places uh, doing those things. I don't particularly care which one of the two you're using. I, you know, I'll go ahead and post things on both. You can find that and see things going on. Uh, also, should be back around the next week. Don't forget our website, currentfortaxdevelopments.com, where I post articles, and we have the articles for this week that are 
found in the copy of the slides that we make available. And you can go there and you can find the articles. And so hopefully you have a good week coming up. We're entering August. So Congress is gone, which is good news, right? They can't do anything when they're not there. Uh, so we'll see what we get here in the August doldrums because there's usually a slow month anyway for developments. But whatever it is, we'll talk about it next week on current federal tax developments.